Brianna. And I'm Homer. You're listening to Life on the Margins, an urban native experience. Our podcast amplifies the voices of marginalized community members and what they face every day, all through an Indigenous lens. In this episode, live at the Cincinnati Playhouse, we interview three amazing guests on the topic of environmentalism, eco-colonialism, and food sovereignty. You're going to want to listen to this one, so let's jump into it. So uh, welcome, everyone. Um, we're really excited to have you all here. Um, we're really excited to be back at the Cincinnati Playhouse. So thanks to the Playhouse um, for uh, this conversation on environmentalism, eco-colonialism, food sovereignty, and probably so much more. Um, so to get started, I was hoping that our guests would introduce themselves and share with us how their work relates to this topic of discussion. So maybe we just go right around the table <laughs> since we're sitting at a table. Uh, my name is James Blanchard. Um, and I, uh, I work for Gorman Heritage Farm. We are an educational nonprofit farm uh, that we, we do a lot of education on um, environmental conservation, nutrition, uh, food sustainability. Uh, and then I also work um, as a volunteer with the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition on their uh, conservation and stewardship committee. I'm Jordan Marika, or Jay the War Pony, on my social media, and I'm your local wood rat and general farmer type person. I'm also a little bit sick, so I'm probably going to have to keep moving back and forth a little bit. I have a little farm just outside of Yellow Springs called Biddy Bobby Farm. It's about three acres. About two-thirds of it are restoring wetlands and growing in a more indigenous way, so focusing on berries and herbs and medicinals rather than on vegetables or on uh, traditional production type things and um yeah i've traveled around the country a lot and seen a lot of cool nature things so i'm just like a woods nerd here to tell you all about the things i like i'm olivia nava uh i have a background in um farming and um also just my clientele was um all of them lived in uh food deserts in cincinnati uh, I'm currently working with Wave Pool in Camp Washington. It's a contemporary art fulfillment center. Um, they push um, experimental art that connects a community and um, in hopes of you know creating change. So um, specifically, I am manager of the Welcome Project. So our platform is for the immigrant and refugee creatives, uh, chefs of Cincinnati. And uh, we also possess a food, free food access spot in Camp Washington that is probably the most popular um, element of welcome. It utilized every single day. Um, and so uh, free food access is um, on our agenda <laughs> um, more than we would want it to be, unfortunately. Thanks, you all. And uh, Homer and I uh, will go ahead and introduce ourselves as well. My name is Brianna. Um, I'm the executive director of the Urban Native Collective. I am Chamorro. Um, 
as it pertains to this particular topic, I've been working with a land trust in the state of Kentucky in the Red River Gorge for about four years sitting on the board of directors. We own over a thousand acres of land that we work to protect and conserve for outdoor recreation, specifically rock climbing. Um, I've been working in conservation and stewardship, amplifying indigenous voices through Another organization that I work with, the uh, Indigenous Field Guide, and um, you know, currently working with the Urban Native Collective here in Cincinnati. And my name is Homer. I am Susquehanna Chippewa. I am a board member of the Urban Native Collective. Uh, after three podcasts, I finally got that right. Um, <laughs> and this is this is the subject where I have the least amount of knowledge. I'll be honest. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, I brought up to Brianna that I really would love to talk about uh, wildlife, preserving yeah. the wildlife and not encroaching so much on their world because it really is. Right, right. And Homer, you kind of um, intro into our first question for our guests, which is, you know, in all of y'all's field of expertise, what do you see as the biggest environmental issue facing this region or even like our larger continent? Um, Homer, you know, mentioned wildlife, but, you know, I'm thinking so many different things like polluted watersheds and, and wildfires, which I know we were all joking earlier about having to cough because the air quality here in Cincinnati has been so terrible. But, um, Jay, maybe you want to start. Um, what do you feel like is the big, if there can be, I feel like there's so many. What, is, what do you feel like the biggest environmental um, issue is facing maybe this region? There is definitely no clear answer on that, but I also think it has a lot to do with people not understanding that the consumption of our resources will eventually run out. Ohio is kind of a really lucky place ecologically. Um, when other people have faced recessions, we grow the food, so we don't have food tax like other states. We, Our state is very agrarian in a way that a lot of other states are not. And so I think that we don't understand that our relationship specifically in the Midwest is still heavily based on working with the land. And because we've been doing it in a colonial mentality for so long, we don't, it's, if there was one answer to this, we wouldn't always be talking about it uh, because it really comes back at its core to our relationships with the land and how we, see doing things in a reciprocal nature. And right now we're in a period of time where only take, no give, and that's not working, right. obviously. Right. So I think it's that mentality is that we just think we can keep taking without giving anything back. Yeah, so not one thing, but just this mentality of how we operate <coughs> with all of these, mm -hmm. yeah. And like six corporations that we could like literally name. Well, let's name them. <laughs> <laughs> I have no issue. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia, do you want to share? Uh, yes. So Camp Washington um, is considered an urban heat island. Um, uh, the vegetation there is not enough, um, is not prevalent enough to actually keep the um, temperature down. So it experiences, it's, it's pretty much warmer than any of the surrounding areas around it. Um, and if you look it up, I think it's like one of the hottest um, areas in Cincinnati. Um, I've lived there. It's hot. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, that's because the heat that is produced by the sun is trapped by the asphalt and the uh, concrete in the area. 
Um, so yeah, that, that's what I thought of when you yeah. when you asked. And that's that primarily where you and the organization you work with operate out of. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I like. Um, I, I feel like I resonated a lot with what what Jay was saying. Like this this idea of like constantly taking. Um, so like in like agriculture, especially in uh, large scale conventional ag, um, it's this this really sad picture. Like we'll we'll drive through um, like rural areas in Ohio or even like northern eastern Kentucky when it's not growing season and see these just fallow fields that have nothing growing in them. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful that like on the farm that I work on, that never really happens. Like we don't have fields that ever lay fallow. We, you know, we pretty aggressively cover crop and, and do all of that because we, we do practice regenerative agriculture, which is just a white people's way of saying we are trying to figure out what indigenous people did for thousands of years. Um, but this, this idea of like constantly stripping the land, it, it leaves the soil completely barren of nutrients. Uh, there's actually a really cool, I, I would have to find it, but there's a really cool uh, resource online where you can look at the soil health across uh, most of the world, not all of it, but a lot of it, uh, through Europe and, and here on Turtle Island. And it's pretty much there is nowhere with healthy soil um, since around 1800. Uh, it's it's really fascinating. So like to me, being in the Midwest, being where we are for our circumstances, that to me is really the the most pressing issue to our area. Yeah, and you know I know we we joked about how we were all all coughing earlier, um, but I, I truly I think today or yesterday was the first day that maybe we didn't get air quality alerts on our phone. And um, what we know is that our area has been affected by the wildfires that are affecting our First Nations relatives up in, up in Canada. And, um, you know, obviously we are not in Canada. And, and this is something that impacts them so directly. However, our communities here are being affected by poor air quality and that affects our everyday way of life and the rain and, and, and it, it, it's just a snowball effect. The and train I, derailment that just dumped water into exactly. like all of our, I don't know if you guys know this about the Ohio River or whatever, but she's connected to all the estuaries ever, ever at all, especially here though, like right here. Yeah, <laughs> and, and just how this is all affected. And when I think specifically about wildfires, it, it's interesting. I was, I think I was at the YMCA waiting for my kid to finish his swim class and I was listening to these two women talk about the wildfires in Canada. And uh, they were like, well, they're saying that it, lightning struck and that started the wildfires. And then the other woman was like, no, no, we think someone started it. We gotta figure out who did this. And I was like, well, I'll tell you what did this. Settler colonialism did this. Banning indigenous burning practices did this because what it did, and Jay, please, or anyone else, you know, extrapolate on this, was prevent 
you know, was was create um, an environment where underbrush and different things that ignite, right? When we think of kindling and we think of the things that we want to use to start fire to grow and those things are easily ignited and the trees are less resilient to the heat because we've banned these indigenous burning practices that make these old trees resilient to the fire and just so many different things and how our society has moved so far away from indigenous knowledge systems that we're like not even thinking about that as a cause to the mm -hmm. wildfire. We're like, who did this? Who started the fire? Who lit the firework that... Don't even get me started on, like, fences and roads as being one of the most destructive inventions of mankind because the truth is, is animal trails can be broken up very easily. It's how I keep rabbits out of my garden. I don't build strong, tall fences. I make confusing twists and turns so that they get really annoyed and leave my things alone. And I don't set traps for predators for my birds. I have two big dogs that bark at predators because I ain't killing nothing I'm not eating. So I'm not fighting coyotes or raccoons when I could have two huge homies do that job by just being loud. You know, they don't even come into conflict because nothing hunts when it's loud. We have built reciprocal relationships with non-human relations already to take care of and maintain pastoralism. We already farmed. We had our own goats, we took care of bison herds. It's not like things thrived here on accident. It was already done on purpose because we just like weren't perfect, but we were definitely listening, right? And taking notes on the things that were going wrong and then trying to improve them. And we keep adding unnecessary roads everywhere. Well, that breaks up every predator pattern mm -hmm. in the area. Yeah. And we have killed off all of our apex predators. So now we're about to get wasting disease on deer. So the most ethical thing you could be doing right now is helping to cull deer populations and eating venison because we have to replace what we have taken away. And what we've taken away is so much that it's just like, the, all of these things fall over like dominoes. Yeah. It's just like, the coyotes are overpopulating because there's no balance in our environment and people keep killing them so they keep reproducing too quickly. But we're afraid to take down our fences and let us have bison or regular regulatory systems that help us create natural flows. Like this area goes directly into the plains, into the prairie. So woodland bison were a huge part of changing our environment and maintaining it. And we haven't had that for 300 years. So imagine what that makes our entire seed bank look like. Right. Um, we need fires to stratify certain seeds. And without, without those fires, certain things will not grow for hundreds of years. So it's not even just that the fires are getting too close. It's that they're happening at the wrong times and they're hurting things when there's like a time and a season for everything. Right. And like, I'm really big on all borders being violence and I like literally mean the fences that keep you from your neighbors. To me, that's a trellis to grow tomatoes on, not something that should separate you from any other person. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, like no fences anymore ever. Yeah. Uh, less yeah, roads. You don't know my neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would get to know them. I'd bring them eggs. We don't have to like each other, but we can say howdy. But on that, you know, topic of separation, what Western science does is they separate these ideas of land from the water, from the wildlife, from conservation, from agriculture. We, they've created a system where we're viewing all of these different things very separately. And through an indigenous lens, we view this as a collective. Um, what do you all feel is the risk of continuing to allow 
Western science and academia to continue to control this space and this narrative of not only separating and isolating, I mean, even down to like the types of degrees you can get in college, right? Like you can follow a path and, and do wildlife conservation, or you can follow a path and do agriculture, or and then water is separate from land. But what do you feel is just this risk that we are going to continue to see um, as we, if we allow Western science and academia, academia, excuse me, to control this. The soil will die. The water will dry up. Um, we already stripped the woods down. Uh, we, we cut it all, all down and, and created this concept of clean farming uh, in order to compartmentalize all these things. Um, and in the last 150 years, we've seen soil die. We've seen prices of herbicide and um, and, and fertilizer go through the roof because we've depleted the soil of nutrients so much that it, it always, I feel like um, culturally it sounds like, like an exaggeration or a hyperbole, but it's not when we say the earth is dying, or rather it's not dying, we've, we've killed it. And, and to continue to allow that to happen is to say we're okay with that. We're okay with with continuing to kill the earth because that's all it's doing, is compartmentalizing it and systematically eradicating it. I think that all hierarchy creates alienation from ourselves, and so I'm never going to be rescued by a colonial institution that was put there to purposefully rank me. Uh, I have a degree, I got it, and I played the game, and all it did was fuck up my mental health and give me $20,000 of debt. Um, I'm doing the same things that my ancestors were enslaved to do and displaced to do, and I probably should have been doing that from the beginning because it's actually what I'm good at. But even as a young person at 29 years old, I can recognize the way that the weather patterns and the soil have changed because I've been doing this kind of my whole life. And I started urban farming in Columbus when I was 12, and things just grew easier back then. And I know that that sounds really hokey, but when you've been doing it your whole life and you can tell the difference between your tomato plants from year to year, when you've been doing it as a cycle of your lifetime, you start to observe how things are changing. And I wouldn't say declining, I would say changing, because if you've never seen kudzu pull a whole, far pull a whole forest or a whole farm down, you know what I'm talking about. The invasives will be here after we are gone. The question is how hard do we want to have to let it get? Because things are changing. Whether or not we like it, We've already been told, Octavia Butler wrote those books for us ages ago. I've got a copy that I read all the time, Goddess Change. We're going to keep pretending like these things aren't happening in front of us. There is no institution in this world that's going to fix it. This is going to require community building, which is really hard. And in order to save ourselves, because in the end, this is a selfish endeavor. Uh, this is a whole planet and we are specks upon it and we shall be dust again. And if we don't do anything about it, we're just going to be fertilizer for whatever comes next. So the question is, how hard do you really want to let it get before you start knocking on your neighbor's doors and asking, hey, yo, I see you can't take care of that yard. Could I grow some corn on there for you? Because there's no reason for lawns. If you don't have space, there's no reason you shouldn't be going to your elderly neighbor and asking if you can maintain the gardening for them. We're going to need each other more and more. So we're going to have to start figuring out ways to reach out and start figuring out ways to work with everybody at their capacity. Not everybody's gonna be a farmer. 
I do serious physical labor every day. It affects my body. I cannot ask other people to do that. However, we are going to need to change the way that we work with each other to get the best out of each, each other that we can because we're about to become a lot more isolate, uh, isolated. We're already seeing that with our shipping. We're seeing that with accessibility to basic needs. Every store shelves are getting a little bit thinner as the months go by. I don't know if you're paying attention to what's stocked and what's not, but people can't get medications right now for things that they need. And it's not because, it's just because it's not being shipped anywhere. We're seeing these systems that are oppressing us falling apart. And now we got to work double time to replace them with something better. And that means supporting each other to be the best at whatever we can. So maybe you're not a land steward. Maybe you're really good at something else and you just need the room to be supported in that way. So I'm less worried about the planet than I am about us as people because I've seen the way honeysuckle grows and that mug ain't going down before we do. Let me tell you what, honeysuckle, we'll drop the bomb and one honeysuckle plant will be out somewhere. Like, I'm here forever. Just wait till it teams up with uh, Tree of Heaven. I don't. I don't want to wait till that happens. Uh, and then Brianna, porcelain berry. Can you... I'm sorry, repeat the question. Of course, like yeah. My brain's I'm going all over the place. What do you see as the risk of continuing to allow Western science and academia to control this space around conservation and agriculture and, um, and the environment? Mm -hmm. um, when you say academia, I, um, I just think about capitalism. Mm -hmm. And um, I also think about uh, like thoughtless infrastructure. Um, and I know I keep bringing up Camp Washington, but that's who I represent. It's applicable. Right now. <laughs> it's in this region. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, a, a pretty, you know, uh, tight knit community um, was affected by the Hopple Street exit being built on top of mm -hmm. um, some community spaces, um, a basketball court, a school. Um, and that effectively, you know, choked out the the neighborhood, and um, now you know, uh, uh, free food access is um, just uh, through the church on uh, right on Rachel Street and Welcome um, and quite a few other um, organizations. We're just we're just trying to feed uh, the people who who live in Camp Washington, um, who have no homes, um, and they are uh, just trying to survive. So we have um, uh, sex workers that are in the neighborhood. Um, we have people, you know, struggling with addiction, um, you know, just trying to, trying to make it, offering, you know, their, their uh, services. You know, can I, can I clean up here? Can I cook here? Um, yeah, uh, I, I also, in, in my in my past life, when I was a farmer, I was um, battling um, our broken uh, broken food system in Cincinnati, um, and that was very difficult too. Um, as as much as we wanted to offer a CSA at a lower price, a more flexible, um, like week to week, like hey, if you need to pause this week, that's fine. Um, it. It uh, you know it's it's a little bit of a dent, but it's not it's not fixing the problem. Unfortunately, as much heart as we all have as um, 
it seems like these careers that are trying to battle these issues, um, it's, it's unfortunate that there are careers, you know, that are, that exist to um, uh, fight things that um, our institutions are not fighting for us. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. <Okay>. <laughs> I wasn't sure, Homer, if you had anything else you wanted to add <laughs> I, regarding. I, I, I think we, we, we hit a lot of um, really important reasons um, why or, or risks of, of continuing. And, and I think this list could go on and on around continuing to allow the current systems and structures that we have set up to dictate um, and control um, our environment because all of these pieces are connected. Um, but what can indigenous knowledge systems do or how can they address these larger issues that we face? You see, that's complicated because that still puts that to me in the frame of creating an academic hierarchy so that we can digest something that actually really needs to be relearned and also rebuilt in a holistic mm -hmm. manner because we're never going back to the way it was. Right. But I still think we can do something pretty cool in the future. I think that starts with looking around your neighborhood and instead of being isolated and saying, I'm okay, so I don't need to think about anybody else, seeing vulnerability in your community as like on a personal affront to you. Like if, if we're so strong and we're so great, how come we have people suffering? That's my logic and that's kind of how I approach the world is that like, I'm never gonna get anywhere unless we all get free. And so reaching out to other people and being like, yo, what type of person would you be if your needs were met? Reaching out to other people who you know are damaged and having some understanding for them. Because, like, I grew up as a kid food insecure um, and abused. And that made me, like, a terrible person for a while. And so we're all walking around with all this damage, not figuring out how to work with each other. And now is not the time. We need to be seeing absence of things in our community as, like, offensive. Like, you should literally be like, yo, moms don't have diapers like, to me, everybody should wake up every day like a little bit pissed that something like that is happening. Like, we talk about being the greatest country in the world, but we have the highest rate of child poverty. We are allowing our most sacred and important people to constantly be vulnerable. I'm talking about trans people. I'm talking about two spirits. How does that make any sense? That don't make any sense. And I think that indigenous people would like to say that we're better, but we also still have to survive the brainwashing mm -hmm. that whiteness has put onto us. Yeah. And we still suffer from trans misogyny. We still suffer from misogyny in our communities. We have our own problems. And so instead of saying, how are we so much more perfect than everybody that we can fix this, rather than looking at each other and going, hey, yo, what do you need so that you can be better? And we're, we're asking the wrong questions. We're seeing the forest for the trees a little bit. And I don't think that any system, any hierarchy, any rule is really gonna fix this because we all kinda gotta figure it out a little bit together. It's gonna look different than it used to, but it really has to look way different than it does now. I agree with everything they just said. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could put a... a a, I'm dropping the mic right now. Put some classes in, in elementary and, and middle schools to deal with this because just replace history classes, they're not really teaching that anyway. And, and bring this to, honestly, the people who need it because I'm old. I'll admit that. Um, 
we're not changing much of anything. We're trying. But when we teach it to our young, they're going to change things. They're, our, they're the future. And if we ignore that and, and don't put that in place, then, yeah, it's going to fail without a doubt. There's no way to have success without passing along good practices to those who are after you, before you, before you, um, younger than you. I'll put it that way. I got lost there. I'm not sure what I was saying. Um, I know what I was saying. I didn't know how to say it. Uh, I speak for a living. This is great. Um, I probably just lost my point. But what I was saying is we have to, to make it a priority to, to teach our young, I think, uh, how to do these things and, and how to build the communities and how to grow the foods, how to, to respect one another and wildlife and plants mm -hmm. and everything because we're all made of the same stuff. You know, everybody seems to forget that. Mm -hmm. um, none of us are different, really. We want to put differences on each other, but we're not. And we need to start teaching that to our young so they can, can raise up and show the ignorant people, stupid, um, the truth. I, as something that I've really been thinking about lately is I don't want to be self-sufficient. I want to be community supported. And it's like, yeah, we're talking about kids whose lives are going to be hard after we go. But does it really got to be that way? Because I don't really, we already are living in a Mad Maxian future. If you know how I feel about roads, then you know every day is like a little bit terrifying to me because I don't like those. I, we could get rid of them and I would be perfectly happy to walk everywhere. You'll see me in a week. It'll be all right. <laughs> and I just, I really think that we, everybody wants to come and build the new movement that's going to do the next great thing. But the question is, when was the last time you sat down with your elder and asked them, what little change made them happy? Uh, are you thinking about these skills in terms of rugged survivalism or in terms of what bring you joy? Because I learned these things because I was raised by somebody who was terrified I was going to die if I didn't. And knowing how to bow hunt and knowing how to grow things is nice unless you're constantly having panic attacks, in which case nothing is nice. And I'm not doing anything if my trauma is ruling my interaction with the land. So we also really got to think about how and why we're doing it and how we're going to approach things because land back is great but like what are you going to do with it if everybody's arguing and can't work together right. land back is great but like i also need my culture back i need ceremony back i need support back because one person cannot fix anything individual groups can't even fix anything we need like 250 people at all times just working with each other in coordinated efforts and i think uh, they're here. They're already here. So yeah. that's uh, the immigrant and uh, indigenous migrant communities, yeah. uh, refugees. Um, they are here and they're here to stay. <laughs> and they are occupying, settling into um, areas that were not um, really looked at as like um, an affluent area or like, no, we don't go over there. Nobody goes over there. They open up restaurants. They open up uh, bodegas. They open up uh, grocery stores. Um, and then the mainstream takes notice, like, dang, there's really good food over there, you know? like, um, And that happens again and again. You know, New York, what is it known for, right? International food. 
I mean, um, accessible food. Um, I think they, um, I think all the pieces are there with the, with the uh, incoming, incoming groups. I mean, I, I can't speak for, um, you know, uh, where everyone here on the panel comes from. Um, I'm a child of immigrants. Um, I, I do have a little bit of an indigenous background um, that we're, my sister and I, she's in the audience here, Rebecca Nava Soto. Um, we're slowly trying to reconnect. Yeah. Um, and I'm so uh, grateful and um, for the connection with you guys. Yeah. And I'm gonna try not to cry. <laughs> <laughs> we are grateful for both of you. And you know, as I was positioning and posing this question, I was like, oh, this question is, it still didn't sit right with me and how I wanted to, what I wanted to communicate. Because Jay, like you said, you know, it, it gives off this idea that like, this one thing's gonna fix it, right? But what you all spoke to so clearly was how can indigenous values help in this system that is so broken? Mm -hmm. um, this system that, this Western system that we continue to be ruled by and controlled by. And, um, you know, what I feel like was mentioned in a variety of different ways was this kinship, this idea of kinship and, and working together and how, you know, we as indigenous people have come so far away in many ways from that um, because of settler colonialism and because of many things out of our own control. But, um, you know, when I think about the indigenous values, right, maybe not knowledge systems necessarily that can fix it, but when I think about indigenous values that we want to amplify to create change in this space, it's community, it's kin, it's coming together as South and Central American, as Mexican, as Native American, as First Nations, as uh, indigenous you know, natives to the island territories and coming together and um, we're stronger together. I really believe that. Um, James, you know, I, I posed this last question. Actually, I was thinking about you a lot when I, when I wrote this last question. But what can non-Indigenous people working in environmental conservation and agriculture, I wrote, I wrote or agriculture, and I feel like that still continues to separate the two, right? Working in this field do to push for Indigenous representation and investment in these indigenous values systems and knowledge and food systems. What can people working, and I know you work in a space like that, what can people do to push for this type of representation? I think as the, as the token white guy, it's okay for me to sit here and say this, uh, <laughs> we can shut up and listen. Um, if you have extra land, give it to indigenous folks give it to them to grow on uh, if, if they want to do that. Um, look at the way that, um, that elders interact with the land, uh, indigenous elders specifically. Look at the way that uh, indigenous people interact with the land. And yeah, I think the biggest piece of advice is shut up and listen. Uh, we've been forcing uh, the way that we saw to do things um, for a very long time. And it obviously hasn't worked. So yeah, shut up and listen. 
I just want to piggyback on that. So um, putting um, representation, um, having these people in the leadership roles, um, yeah. stepping back, maybe being a mentor, and then just disengaging, being a support. Um, that's, what, that's all I want to say. <laughs> Put them in, in, in the leadership roles. Um, uh, maybe establish these organizations, these programs, and then hand it over. Hand it over. Uh, I think that we just need to be giving direct reparations to black people who are descendants of enslaved, stolen African indigenous people. Uh, a lot of my ancestors ended up here because they were, in fact, so good at farming that white people were like, we're bad at this. We have to steal a lot of people to do it for us. And I think that um, black and indigenous communities have always had ways of regulating themselves outside of the European lens for like a really long time. And I think that we just need land back to be able to mind our business because sometimes things aren't for or about you. And that's like literally okay. I know there's a lot of white people out there who like, but how do I participate? You don't, you don't have to. It's like okay to like stand there and hand out Kool-Aid. We appreciate the hydration. It's just like, all right, to not even show up actually. Sometimes we really need spaces to be able to act as ourselves and be as ourselves without the scrutiny and the pity or whatever performance we're supposed to make for these people. And that means we need to be given the places to do so. I don't wanna have to do ceremony in a place where someone can buy a ticket and come watch me dance. I don't want that. I am really not interested in this idea of hierarchy and capitalism being replicated in black and brown and red face. It's not working. We have to change our ideology to the core. And so for me, I don't really think that even putting us in these positions of these organizations is gonna do as much as literally just giving us our things back. I don't wanna have to negotiate anymore. I don't wanna have to go look at a board of people who is white and older than me and go, please understand my humanity for my people, I'm working really hard to give us just this much. Just give me it so I can do it my damn self. I know what I'm doing. I'm listening to my own relatives. I'm going around and talking to my neighbors. I really don't need some mediocrity to come in and stop me from what I'm trying to do. So you just need to be giving us money and land so we can do what we need to in our own spaces. And when someone is coming and trying to take our land, that's when you show up and you sit down and you get in the way. That's when we need you around, when it's not beneficial to you, not when you can take pictures of us, not when you can get tattoos after participating in our protests, when we need you to sit down and keep our land safe and keep our kids safe and keep our elders safe. That's when you can show up. This live episode was brought to you in partnership with the Cincinnati Playhouse. We are so grateful to the Cincinnati Playhouse for opening up their space for us to host these live episodes. And we are so grateful to our community for coming out to listen, uh, for our community for supporting us and having our back. We hope that you all will continue to like, subscribe, share, and distribute our podcast all across the airwaves. And just a reminder, you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, peace.